0: I have the immense privilege of talking about God this morning. It doesn't get much better than that, but first I want to tell you about a famous family member, a famous relative that I have, at least kind of famous. Uh, have Have any of you heard of a basketball player named Corey Kispert? All right, so yeah, some of you have heard of him and the rest of you are about to. Uh, Corey grew up in the city of Edmonds, which is about an hour north of here, about an hour from where I grew up, where I live. Uh, he's tall. He's, he's more than, I'm more than a decade older than Corey, but I'm pretty sure that he was taller than me before he was in high school. And he's about six foot seven now. And for reference, that's taller than Pastor Jeff. He played basketball and football in high school. He was gifted athletically. He was also gifted academically. He was just an all-around solid kid. And then high school car- Cory grew up and became college Corey. He went to Gonzaga University where he uh, played for the basketball team there, and he was one of the top players on the team. During his senior year, which I believe was 2001, his team was undefeated all the way up until the championship game where they were sadly defeated. But our sadness didn't last long because later that same year, Corey was drafted into the NBA where he now plays for the Washington Wizards and he has my last name on his jersey. I'm excited about that. There's a lot more that I could tell you about, Corey, but there is one significant detail that I haven't told you about my relationship With Corey Kispert. I don't have a relationship with Corey Kispert. I've never met him. I don't know him. I've only seen him on TV, and all the information that I just told you about him, I picked up either from my parents who do know him or from the internet. And I tell you all of this because there are many people who know God like I know. Corey Kispert, which is to say, many people who may know a lot of things about God, but don't have a relationship with him, don't truly know him at all. And it's entirely possible in a group this size that this may describe some of you who are here this morning. You may know a lot about God. You may have Christian parents or Christian family members. You may go to church regularly and have a lot of knowledge about God. You may be able to talk about God in a way that convinces others that you do know him. You may even be convinced that you yourself know him because of your knowledge or your religious activity. But there is a big difference. There is a heaven and a hell kind of difference between knowing God and merely knowing a lot of things about him. According to the Bible, to know God is another way of saving, saying that we have a saving relationship with him. To know God means that you're part of his family, that you have eternal life. If you remember the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, he tells us what the essence of eternal life is. In John 17:3, he says, "This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. Not that we would merely know some true things about him, but that we would know him in a deeply relational way and enjoy fellowship with him. And it's this issue of knowing God that is at the heart of the passage of Scripture that we will spend the bulk of our time Considering this morning. So please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. If you have a paper Bible, you can open to the middle, and Jeremiah is about 100 pages to the right. Or if you're using one of the Bibles that is provided under the chairs in front of you, you'll find Jeremiah 9 on page 597. 597. And we're going to focus the majority of our attention on just two verses this morning. Jeremiah chapter 9, Verses 23 and 24. Follow along as I read. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, And righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Before we dive into these verses, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time, this opportunity for us to get to know you more. Thank you for allowing us to know you at all. We don't deserve it, but we're grateful for your grace in making yourself known. I pray that you would help us to clear our minds of anything that would distract us from hearing from you this morning. And I pray that as we leave this place, we would boast only in you. And you know, we would delight in the things that you delight in. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, a little context. Jeremiah is a book of judgment. In chapter 1, verse 16, the Lord says this to Jeremiah, And I will declare my judgments against them, for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their hands. He says, I will declare my judgments against them. And so who are the them who are the objects of God's judgment? And to answer that, I think it will be helpful to orient ourselves in history back to the time when these things took place. So we'll start with King David, a familiar character. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. And then David's son Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. But Solomon's son was an unwise king, and under his rule, the nation of Israel split into two nations, into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom that was called Israel and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. Well, the northern kingdom was particularly wicked, and after many warnings, many loving warnings from God, he finally allowed them He finally judged them by allowing the Assyrian Empire to conquer them in 722 BC. And sadly, the southern kingdom of Judah didn't learn from the sins of their northern relatives. And in 586, they would suffer the same fate. Jerusalem would be destroyed and the few who survived would be taken captive to Babylon. And Jeremiah lived before and during that Babylonian exile. And the verses that we're looking at now happened not too long before that destruction and that exile. And so the them against whom the judgments of God are aimed is that kingdom of Judah, a nation, these people who were supposed to be the Lord's people, God had made himself known to them and entered into a covenant relationship with them. It was a marriage like relationship, but they had been unfaithful. God had been a loving, faithful husband to them, a faithful God, but they, according to chapter 3 of Jeremiah, had prostituted themselves out to the gods of the world around them, to the ways of the world around them. And yet, they didn't want to completely give up their affiliation with the Lord. They still held on to certain aspects of their religion. For example, because they still had the, the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem, they, they had this false sense that the, the Lord was somehow pleased with them. Even though they had completely abandoned his law, they foolishly believed that they were on good terms with God because we have the temple. We do temple things. And not only that, they they had a religious tradition that they were also holding on to. If you're still in Jeremiah 9, we read verses 23 and 24, but look how the chapter ends. Beginning in verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And as a side note, you haven't lived until you're teaching the Bible to a group of teenagers and the topic of circumcision comes up. (laughs) It's it's exhilarating. Um, But if you're going to teach the Bible, it's a topic that you can't avoid for long because it comes up over and over. And this practice of circumcision was meant to be an external sign, a covenant sign marking out the descendants of Abraham as the people of God. And although Judah had broken that covenant in every way, they still held on to the symbol of that covenant. And it would be like a man— doesn't care about his wife, doesn't give her any attention, spends six out of seven nights a week in his girlfriend's bed, but insists on wearing his wedding ring. Even though he's broken every vow and has no desire to keep any of the vows connected to that symbol. Now, we aren't required to practice temple worship or circumcision on this side of the cross, but we do have religious things that we do that can become as empty and meaningless as those things had become for Judah. Just think about what we're doing right now. Our Sunday morning gatherings can become to us what the temple and circumcision had become to Judah. We can become guilty of offering to God our Sunday morning best while spending the other six days of the week in bed with the world, giving ourselves over to the pursuits and the values of the world, the, the idols of the world around us. And all that to say, I think we're more like ancient Judah than we'd like to admit. And we need these two verses in Jeremiah just as much as they did. We need this reminder from the Lord that there's a better way. There's a higher pursuit There's a more satisfying purpose for life than anything that this world has to offer. And so here's my main idea for for this morning. Our boast must not be in what we have, but in who we know. That will serve as our outline as well. From verse 23, our boast must not be in what we have, and from verse 24 our boast must be in who we know. So first our boast must not be in what we have. Look again at Jeremiah 9:23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. So I know most of us don't think of ourselves as boasters. Like We tend to roll our eyes at those who, who boast or brag about themselves. It, it's obnoxious. Like the, the look at me, look what I can do, look, what, look at all the things I have. Like we view that kind of boasting as being beneath us. Like we might boast that we don't boast, but that's as far as our boasting goes. And although the boasting here in Jeremiah 9 might include that kind of, of boasting, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. If you have a King James or a New King James version of the Bible, instead of the word boast, your translation says not to glory in wisdom or might or riches. And we don't, we don't often use the word glory in that way, but to glory in something means to celebrate it, to put our confidence in it, to view it as the source of our happiness and satisfaction. we naturally glory in the things that we value the most. We naturally glory in the things that we value the most. If you watch a, a certain football game later today, you'll see glorying on full display. Pay attention to whoever wins, and you will see through their actions and through their words and through their facial expressions that this was my goal. This is what I live for. I glory in this game And in this victory, I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate wins in life, but we all have that thing or those things that we live for, that we boast in. We all have something. And the problem isn't that we boast. That's not the problem. The problem comes when our boast is in the wrong thing. And so the question is, what do you glory in? What are you living for? What are you striving after? And Jeremiah lists three wrong things that people often boast in. And so let's consider each one briefly. So the first there is wisdom. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And so, question is wisdom bad? Is wisdom bad? It's not. It's not, it's not inherently bad or sinful, but the Bible does make a distinction between the wisdom that comes from God and wisdom that is worldly. And I think the easiest way to tell the difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom is whether or not it produces pride in us. Man's wisdom leads to a big head. It puffs up, whereas God's wisdom leads to a big heart and humility. God's wisdom, true wisdom, begins with a right understanding of God, a right reverence for God, which is why Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the wisdom of the world does not have God as its starting point or its ending point or any point in between. But the world that we live in loves its own wisdom, Loves its philosophers and gurus. Loves the talking heads on TV and the internet personalities with brilliant minds and quick wits who can silence their opponents and make them look like fools. And this love of worldly wisdom, it can creep into the church as well. When we care more about winning an argument than winning a person. When we care more about truth than we care about love. This may be a sign that we're guilty of boasting in wisdom. Or maybe you're really into studying theology, which is a wonderful thing, by the way. Keep studying theology. Get books about God and the Bible. But we do need to be careful. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this temptation. You're you're in a conversation with another Christian, or you're in a Bible study, or you're given a, a teaching opportunity And you felt the temptation to flaunt your knowledge of the Bible a little, to show off your theological acumen. And we need to beware of using our knowledge of the Bible to glorify ourselves rather than glorify God. The story is told of some American pastors in the 1800s who traveled to London and wanted to hear the two greatest preachers of the time. And so one Sunday they visited a prominent church in the area, and the Americans were amazed by the preaching, and they left the service saying, What a great preacher! What a great preacher! Well, the next Sunday they visited the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And yes, the preaching was great, but instead, Of saying, what a great preacher. They left the service saying, what a great Savior. What a great Savior. Spurgeon used his wisdom and his knowledge to point people to Christ. And I pray that the same would be true of us. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Next is might or strength. Let not the mighty man boast. In his might. So, another question is might bad? No. Similar to um, wisdom, it depends on how we use it, it depends on how we view it. This might or strength can refer to positions of power and authority, but it also often refers to those who had great physical strength or ability. And the world that we live in loves might. Sports in the U.S. is a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's like a religion for a lot of people who sacrifice large amounts of money and time to visit the local temple, I mean a stadium, to offer Praises to the demigods, running around the field, and we we love our sports. Like even in the church, we love our sports, maybe a little too much at times. If you've ever skipped a church service because your team was playing at the same time, if you've ever signed your kid up to play in a league that has games on Sunday morning, I, I know I might be stepping on on toes by even bringing these things up. But what does it communicate about God when we do these things? What does it communicate to your family and to your kids and to the watching world? What are we communicating about what is of true and lasting value? Something to think about. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Next up is riches. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So, another question are riches bad? They're not. Nowhere in the Bible are riches said to be bad. But the Bible is full of warnings to the rich or to those who desire to be rich. It's full of warnings about the danger of loving or trusting in money, and this is one of those warnings. And I don't need to convince you that the world loves riches. Money and possessions give us comfort. Like money gives us a sense of security. And having a lot of stuff gives us a certain amount of happiness and satisfaction. As I was, as I was writing this sermon, an Amazon delivery van drove by my window. And on the side of the van, it said, warning, Contents may cause happiness. And the van wasn't lying, but what it didn't tell me is that the happiness I feel when I get new stuff will soon fade. And then I'll have to buy more new stuff. And then more new stuff in order to stay happy or keep the illusion of happiness. Money and possessions are deceptive. Because while they can provide some comfort and security and happiness, those things only last as long as the money lasts. And the money won't last. It will will be lost eventually, either in this life or finally at death. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who had an overabundance of food and possessions. And this rich man says to himself, soul, that's what he called himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. That's security. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry, comfort, and happiness. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, meaning he was about to die, and the things you have prepared whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. According to Jesus, we are fools if we boast in earthly riches. So let not the wise man boast in his riches. Well, as I've mentioned multiple times, none of these things, wisdom, might, or riches, none of these things are inherently bad. The problem is that we have this sinful tendency to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We take what are meant to be gifts and we make them into gods and we worship them. We glory in the gifts and we forsake the giver. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says this, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They had forsaken the Lord who had given them wisdom, might, and power. They had rejected the one who gives life and breath and everything. And God has every right. He had every right and he still has every right to forsake those who forsake him to turn us over to judgment and judgment will come for those who glory in the gift rather than the giver. And as I mentioned earlier, the book of Jeremiah is about judgment and it's a judgment that is well-deserved. We all deserve it, but it's not only about judgment. There is grace to be found here. And if verse 23 is the bad news, verse 24 is the good news. If verse 23 shines the spotlight on our hearts and reveals our sinfulness, verse 24 shines an even brighter spotlight on God and his grace. And this is an invitation to life. And so point number one was our boast must not be in what we have. Point number two... Our boast must be in who we know. So look at verse 24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boasting isn't the problem, it's the object of our boast, that is the problem. We glory in the wrong things. And so here the Lord tells us that the only proper object of our boasting is Himself. And He hasn't left us to guess who He is or what He's like. We have an entire Bible in which God shows us who He is so that we can know Him. That's amazing. And here in verse 24, the Lord gives us three truths about himself, three attributes of his character. He practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth because he is steadfastly loving and just and righteous. And note that these three unending, unfading glories stand in contrast to the temporary and fading glories that we just looked at in verse 23. And so we'll spend some time considering each one of these attributes. So first is his steadfast love. His steadfast love. In Hebrew, the word is chesed. And it's not the easiest word to translate into English because really we need a handful of of English words to adequately capture the breadth and beauty of this single Hebrew word. And so I looked up seven different English translations and found seven different ways of translating chesed. Steadfast love, kindness, faithful love, loving kindness, unfailing love, mercy, and loyal love. Each is a little different, but most include some aspect of love and highlight the faithfulness or the consistency of that love. One commentator says that chesed is commonly used in the Old Testament of covenant love. Hence, God is emphasizing his own moral consistency as against the infidelity of his people. And the people have been unfaithful to a God who has been completely faithful to them. And this reminder of God's covenant love is an invitation for his unfaithful people to turn from their sin and return to him. That's what repentance is. And he will receive them. He will forgive them if they do that. And this isn't only true of the ancient Israelites. This is still the case. He still invites unfaithful people like us to come to him and receive forgiveness, which is why we love the gospel so much. Because it's at the cross, the place where Jesus suffered and died. It's there that we see this steadfast love of the Lord most clearly. And this is why a verse like Romans 5.8 is so powerful. Because it tells us that God shows his love. He demonstrates his love. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still unfaithful, while we were busy forsaking God, Christ died for us. And we know that Jesus didn't die for his own sins because the Bible is clear he didn't have any. He lived a perfectly faithful life. He always obeyed the Father. He had never forsaken God. And yet, what did he cry out when he hung from the three nails that were driven through his hands and feet? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God, but not for any wrong that he had done. He was forsaken for the wrong that we have done. He took our place, he endured the judgment that should have fallen on us. And why would he do that? The steadfast love of the Lord. For God so loved. The world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He died, he perished so that we could have life. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven and enjoy fellowship with God. Do you know this love? Have you experienced this love? It's a life-transforming kind of love. Can you say with the psalmist, your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. Better than all the wisdom and might and riches that this world has to offer. So back to Jeremiah 9. Justice and righteousness. What are those? Well, God's justice is closely linked to his role As judge, it means that he will always be fair in his treatment of his creatures. He'll always be fair in his treatment of us. In Genesis 18, Abraham asks the question Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, he will always do what is just. But this justice of God, stands in contrast to the injustice of the people that he was speaking to. Back in Jeremiah 7, the Lord condemns Judah for oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And they were guilty of shedding innocent blood. They were treating one another unjustly, particularly those who were the weakest among them. So if you're still in Jeremiah 9, look at verse 5. Jeremiah 9, 5 says, Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And he continues on with more and more indictments against them. And then in verse 9, he says, Shall I not punish them for these things? declares the Lord. And shall not I and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And notice that he doesn't say, Shall I not avenge the oppressed? He says, Shall I not avenge myself? Well, why? God cares about people. He cares about the way that we treat one another. And when we sin against another human being, we are sinning against the God who made them and loves them. And there's also a a biblical expectation that those who have wisdom and might and riches would use those gifts for the benefit of those who are in need. And when we refuse to share what the Lord has given us for that purpose, we act unjustly by hoarding for ourselves what was meant to be given to others. And finally, righteousness, which has to do with right behavior, discerning between what is right and wrong, the purity of moral character. And we can be brief here. God is perfectly righteous and we are not. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. If you read the first nine chapters of Jeremiah, there isn't a hint of righteousness to be found among the people. And God, being the righteous and just judge that he is, must pronounce judgment on them and on us. And he has. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And Paul tells us what the nature of this death is in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where he says that those who are opposed to God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That is what death is in its fullest form. And there's a bit of a tension in the Bible that only the gospel can solve. And so think about this. If God were to look at us in our sin and say, you're not guilty, he would be unjust. Like a human judge would be unjust to let a thief or a murderer go free without paying any kind of penalty for their crime. A payment must be made for sin. And so here's the question that we all must have an answer for. How can God declare us to be righteous without making himself unrighteous in the process? Jesus is the answer to the question. The cross is the place where God's love and justice meet. Because it was on the cross that Jesus willingly took our guilt. He took all of our unrighteousness upon himself, All of our sin was transferred to him and he paid the penalty in full. And so the judgment that was aimed at us fell on him and God's justice was satisfied. And so he can be just and the justifier. He can be righteous and declare us to be righteous because not only did Jesus take our unrighteousness upon himself, but he also gives us his righteousness. But his righteousness isn't automatically applied to everyone. You have to receive it. And the way that you receive it is through faith. It's trusting in Jesus and what he did for us rather than trusting in yourself and anything that you can do. To paraphrase Spurgeon, you might as well try to sail across the ocean on a leaf as try to get to heaven by your own righteousness. Only the righteousness of Christ can bring us into a right relationship with God. And this is how we can come to know him. Well, if any of these things that I've been saying are new ideas for you, or if you have more questions, There are many people in this room who would love to talk to you after the service, myself included. And if you can't linger today, schedule a meeting to meet with one of the pastors here. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, if you don't know God, or if you don't know whether or not you know God, don't wait. Don't put off until some undefined future time. None of us knows how much time we have left. Trust in Christ, friends. Maybe some of you are thinking, but can we really know whether or not we know God? It seems so subjective. And yes, there is a subjective aspect to knowing God, which means that we need to be able to examine our hearts and so let's consider some questions that will help us to get a better grasp of where we stand in relation to the Lord. And the first question is, what do you boast in? What do you glory in? Boasting in wisdom or might or riches or anything else is in direct conflict with knowing God. God if you value anything in this life more than you value a relationship with God, you may not know him. That's not to say that Christians don't get off course from time to time. We do, but the overall trajectory of our lives should be moving toward Christ. And if you're really brave, go to the people in your life who know you best. Go to a parent Go to a spouse, go to your children, and ask them, what would you say I'm most passionate about? Ask them, what would you say is the thing that I'm living for as you observe my life? What do I glory in and then humbly receive whatever they have to tell you? What do you boast in? A second question is similar, but what do you delight in the things that God delights in? Do you delight in the things that God delights in? I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To know God is to delight in the things that he delights in. And if we delight in what, God's de- in, in what God delights in, we will want to put these things into practice in our lives as well. But it's not easy because there's a personal cost to love as God loves. To love even when that love isn't reciprocated. To practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness often involves making a sacrifice. Giving something up for the good of others, their gain at my expense. But we're able to joyfully do that, to joyfully give up our time, our energy, our money, our comfort, because we know that we have something better, something that will last longer. Or should I say we have, we know someone, who is better. And so before we end, consider the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man with an impressive religious resume. And we get a peek at that resume in Philippians chapter 3, where he gives us his list. He has the right pedigree. He has the knowledge and education. He has He had countless religious accomplishments and he gloried in those things. He knew about God. He knew more about God than many of us know, but he didn't know God. But then he met the risen Christ and he says this in Philippians 3 verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Can you say that? Can you say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes to see you as you are. Be at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given us to delight in the things that you delight in and to boast only in you. May we be able to say honestly with Paul that we count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth Of knowing Christ. And if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, anyone who is still believing that something in this world is more to be desired than you are, I pray that you would shine the spotlight of your convicting grace onto their heart. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We love you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.